All right. Good morning. How are you doing, Trinity Church? Yeah, Merry Christmas to you. You guys look great. Lots of reds and greens out in the audience. Very cool. Or great to see you today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. We have uh, entered into this Christmas season. We've entered into a new series called Intersections. And we're talking about what happens when things that you might not normally put together intersect at Jesus' arrival and what's the outcome of that. So you join us today. We're kind of in week two, even though it's the third weekend of uh, the Christmas, uh, Christmas season. Great job with our kids' musical. Can we thank them again for what a great job they did last weekend? It was so good. And actually, the message of the kids' musical really lays the foundation for where we're going today. If, start with me this way. If you have a Trinity this week, get this out. Let me show you a couple things. One is, is that today, if you're relatively new to Trinity and we just haven't had the chance to meet or you'd like to know a little bit more about how to get involved, right out of these doors after this service on the plaza is a You Are Here booth. It's got a, a logo that looks just like that. And come find us. Uh, myself and some of our other pastors will be there. We'd love to meet you. Love to answer any questions that you have. And if it's just a chance to connect, that will be huge. So just know we'd love to do that today right after service. If you take a look, there's another insert in your uh, Trinity this week called Ways to Give. I want to let you know about that. What we do is basically on a regular basis, probably three or four times a year, we just insert this because there are always people who are joining us at Trinity and want to get involved in all facets of just following the Lord. And one of those is obediently and consistently giving to a local church. And so within that, we wanted to let you know of different ways to give. Some of us might think maybe the only way to do that is when an offering bag goes by, but to know that you can do that through your checking account or through some other means, even to even know there's other ministry or there's other accounts besides our ministry fund, which is our kind of general operating expenses, but our building fund as well as our helps or our benevolence fund as well. So we just do that for your help, just so you can know that, and we want to keep that in front of you and uh, just to, so you can be aware. And then finally, um, go ahead and look on the back of your Trinity this week. You'll note the graphic on the back is called, there's something there called Still. And we are real excited in the brand new year. This is the new teaching series we're going to begin in January. A series really devoted to talking about what does it mean to find God as our refuge in the midst of fear and anxiety. So we're real excited about that series and encourage you not only for you to join us in that, but also for the people in your world who you think that might be an encouragement to. We'd love for you to think of that as well. All right? Well, here's what we're going to do today. You take your notes out of, of your Trinity this week. If you have a Bible today, we're in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, if you want to find your way there today. Um, if you don't know where that's at, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So the sixth book in the New Testament, if you want to find your way there to chapter 3. And what we're going to do today as we have been looking at this series, we're realizing we knew a couple things in advance. We knew that we had a great need. And if you look around, whether you are uh, someone who is following Jesus or someone who is looking into it or someone who just not even interested at this point, what you do know, all of us know there's something wrong and something broken. We know that this world, there's something not right, and it looks to all of us, there's an appearance that there should be something different and it could be fixed. There's something that could be restored. And what the Bible teaches is that it can be restored, and what God did at Jesus' arrival is he recognized our need and actually sent a rescuer, sent someone to come and make a way for us to be right with him. And today what we're looking at, we're going to look through the lens of, of God's justice, specifically through the lens of his judgment, 
That is, that is what comes from a just God towards sin, is judgment. But what we're also going to see is that not only did that judgment come, but so did pardon. And the pardon came through this amazing arrival of Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of Jesus Christ. What's really going to blow our minds today is what we're going to see is that not only is God a just judge, but it's the judge who provides the means for us to be justified. And that's going to be just a powerful thing we're going to look at. Let's look at our now what idea. We do this weekly. Not just is not just a big idea summary. It's what am I supposed to do with this passage this week? In our notes, thank God for how great it is to be pardoned, freed, and adopted by God through his son, Jesus. Let's dial in. Number one in our notes, the rightness that God requires only comes by faith in Jesus, not religion. The rightness that God requires only comes by faith in Jesus, not religion. We pick it up in Romans chapter 3, looking at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. I want you to do this today. I want you to kind of in your mind leave this room, as wonderful it is to be on the campus of Trinity Church in a worship service. Let's leave this moon today, and I want you or room today, and I want you to transport yourself in your mind to a courtroom. Because even though that's not the only metaphor that Paul is going to introduce today in this passage, it is to me the predominant one. And as you were listening, if you would have been in the audience listening the first time that Paul's letter was read to the Jesus followers in Rome, as he began, to, as the person reading began to read these words, their mind would instantly go to a courtroom because this is legal language. And so I want you to do that today. I want your mind to go there in the courtroom. And for some of us who have served maybe in a jury recently, that's not hard to do. Others of us have been in a court for a different reason, and that's great too. But either way, <laughs> either way, transport your mind a little bit and, and just do this. Just process a little bit what that, what that, all your senses are taking in. And as you go into this courtroom, you recognize the weight. There is a seriousness in that space very distinct from almost any other place on the planet. The air is thick. It's intimidating even to consider whispering to the person sitting next to you because there is a, a piercing silence in the room. There is a gallery in the back for spectators to watch and you find yourself at the table in the front. You are the defendant. It weighs heavy on every part of who you are. Across from you, this direction is the prosecuting attorney known as Satan. The Bible tells us he's the accuser of the saints. And he has meticulously and specifically pointed out each and every trespass you have ever committed against a holy God. And as you have had to listen, you recognize that he's right. There is nothing, nothing in your Mind your soul that can conjure up some excuse. And all you can do is listen to the evidence. Directly across from you is a judge. Sitting up behind the bench. And as he's there, he's taking everything in and he's about to pronounce a sentence, about to pronounce a ruling. And the ruling is, you are guilty. 
in an odd way, you don't react because you already knew he was right. And he begins to read the sentence. As you stand up and are escorted from his presence, you're almost out of the room. It's as though from the shadows, someone appears. You at first don't know who he is, but then it becomes clear to you it's the judge's son. And the judge stops you. He simply, simply looks at you and says, though you are deserving of your punishment, my son is willing to take your place. But the choice is up to you. You can take it yourself or you can let him take it for you. In that moment, you don't even know what to do. You don't even know if this is real. You're thinking maybe you're having an out-of-body experience. You're thinking that some dream that you're in the middle of and you're going to snap into reality in any moment, the world will come crashing down. But it's not happening and you take it for what it is, a real genuine offer for an innocent man to take it for you. Your mind is overwhelmed, your heart is leaping in your chest, but what's more, as you say, yes, would you be willing to do that for me? I would accept that exchange. The judge looks down at you and not only receiving, hearing your response, but says, and all the more, not only are you going to be pardoned for your crimes, but I actually want to adopt you into my family and make you mine. Are you kidding me? Can you even stop and fathom that kind of courtroom drama that could happen? And the reality is it's all over this passage we're looking at today. It's not fictitious. It's not something I made up. It's something super clear in the word of God. And what I want you to see today, what I want you to enter into as we look at this passage, whether you have been walking with the Lord for decades or whether you haven't even begun yet, this truth is for all of us. And it's meant to do something. It's meant to be something we respond to, not just once, but ongoingly. And as we look at this passage today, I want you to see this great news that the gospel is so much more than getting out of hell. Somehow we've done that. Somehow we've reduced this amazing news to simply what you don't have to endure rather than all that is yours when you simply respond in faith to the gospel. We're going to look today at a passage that commentator Leon Morris said is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. So it's my privilege to get to look at it with you today. Let me back you up. What we've seen so far in Romans, uh, beginning in verse 118, to 320, is we've seen this, uh, basically Paul, and again, he's going to use a very legal metaphor today, he's actually been making a legal case. He has been pointing out and demonstrating all the ways that all of humanity, not just the Gentile, not just the Jew, all humanity live on the side of guilt related to a holy God. Piece by piece, case by case, he's been working his way for almost two chapters of the 16 chapters of Romans, he's been building a case about our guilt. Then just prior to the passage we read today, we see this avalanche of quotes from the former covenant from the Old Testament condemning all of mankind. Now we get to these head-spinning words, verse 21, but now... 
Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But now is probably one of the best transitions ever in the Bible. All of this is true, but now God is doing something different. God had revealed a new brand of righteousness and this ability to be right with God apart from a law, apart apart from doing something to earn merit, now has been made known and it arrived when Jesus did. This kind of righteousness isn't earned, it's given. And faith is the mechanism by which it's received. These are intensely powerful words when you consider how all of the religions of the world operate differently than this. And this is a question in your notes and on the screen. How do religions answer this question, what must you do to be right with your deity? What must you do to be right with your deity? Think of any world religion... More importantly, and and I'm not thinking of someone who could tell you about it. Think of someone who follows it. Think of someone in your relational world who's following a world religion other than biblical Christianity. And then think of how they would answer this question. What do you have to do to be right with your God or gods? And they would instantly be able to answer that question. Maybe not in totality, but it would go something like this. There are these set of rules you have to try to keep. There are these set of activities that you have to engage in. There are these things you must not do. They would instantly go to a reality of some way to earn or merit a right standing with this deity. Even when you think at what God gave initially to his unique people on the planet, to Jews, the idea of Judaism is absolutely consistent with any other world religion. There was a law to keep. There were sacrifices to be made. There were things they were not to do. And and what we find later on in the New Testament is every piece of that puzzle was pointing to the reality, you can't be good enough, so therefore be open, be receptive to the offering that will be done on your place, in, in your stead. That's what the law was always pointing to, was the need For the righteousness that only Jesus could provide. But for those who instead would put their faith, their confidence in what God has done for them. What he provided on their behalf through the God-man Jesus. Who we celebrate his arrival at Christmas. We are made right with God. Not based on anything we've done, but on what he's done for us. So back to the courtroom. You've been found guilty, but there's a way, better said, there's a person who can make you right with the judge. Number two in your notes today, Jesus accomplished your pardon, your freedom, and turned aside God's wrath at the cross. Jesus accomplished your pardon, your freedom, and turned aside God's wrath at the cross. Back to our text, we're in the middle of verse 22 in chapter 3 of Romans. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So here's basically what Paul's doing. He's been saying for almost two chapters of this letter to the Romans... 
how guilty all of humanity is. And then he summarizes that in a very short amount of space. For some of us who like the Reader's Digest version, this is it. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For many of us who have memorized an avenue, a means by which to share the gospel, this good news, we call it the Romans Road. This is usually one of the first verses we look at. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a summary statement of the first three chapters, basically, of the book of Romans in a very tight summary statement. And this reality says that basically there's no extenuating circumstances. Now let's think about that for a minute. Though there's this universality of of guilt of all of us, it's interesting still how many times we'd like to think, but but judge, you got to understand what was going on. Think of how often we frame it in those words. Maybe for some of us it was actually in a courtroom. Maybe we said, but judge, you don't understand in that moment, in that circumstance, yes, I did X, but it was because of Y. Maybe it wasn't in a courtroom, but it surely happens in your marriage. Saying to your spouse, hey, I know what it looks like, but if you really knew the whole story, right, you'd be a lot more merciful towards me. Maybe it happens in the workplace, coming to a boss and saying, I know there was a deadline, and this is the next statement, and it's usually because, but so-and-so really blew it. It's like, who can we throw under the bus, right? And because he or she didn't get it right, now I can't get my stuff done, you know, etc. So there's extenuating circumstances for sure. If you can't relate to any of those scenarios, you absolutely can relate to when you were a child and you said that to your parents. Better said when you were a teenager, right? And said, hey, and by the way, you feel like, Todd, you're hating on us right now. Absolutely not. I just have one of you in my home, okay? <laughs> so, so within this idea, it's like, hey... I know I did X, but if you understood the scenario, then you would see it's not as bad as it looks. And we always have these extenuating circumstances that we want to draw from. But the reality is this, is God says there are no extenuating circumstances related to the guilt. No matter what your background, no matter what you did or didn't have, the reality is we were sinful by nature, sinful by action, and therefore stand before a holy God with a big problem. But that being true, that being true, look at these next words. Paul says, but all are justified freely. He's going to use this legal metaphor. Let's look at the definition of the term. To be justified theologically is to be declared right. To be justified is to be declared right. Now, that can mean a lot of things. Meaning, does that mean to be declared right means that now everything I do is right because I've been justified, I've been declared right, or does it mean that my position or my standing has been altered and now I'm in a right relationship? What does that actually bear out? Commentator Colin Cruz puts it this way. Related to what Jesus afforded for us, it doesn't mean that we're made right morally, that we've all of a sudden become completely virtuous, but that we, but that we right with God I'm sorry, I think I needed we are. There we go. But we are right with God because of Jesus' accomplished work. So to, and, and we saw this a little bit when we were in the book of Colossians back in September and October. We walked through this idea of what's the difference between being positionally right with God and living rightly according to God's design. And those are two different things. And that's what this is talking about. This idea of being justified is to be declared right. Now, when you think about it in our legal system... 
here in the United States of America, maybe the closest word, and a word that we're going to use throughout the day today, it's even in our, our title today, is the word pardon. The word pardon, let me give you the definition of what the judicial word for pardon means. It means to use executive power to forgive a person convicted of a crime. This is just out of Webster's, okay? This is just a legal definition. Thus removing any remaining penalties or punishments and preventing any new prosecution of the person for the crime for which the pardon was given. That's a very long definition, but if you stop and read that and read the consequences that roll out of it, if you read all that that entails, you walk away going, a pardon is a good thing. That covers a lot of ground, and when you realize your guilt, a guilt you can't squirm out of or say there were extenuating circumstances, you go, God, I'll take that any day. A pardon is rich, but I want you to see this. Our legal system cannot duplicate, cannot absolutely demonstrate what theologically happens when we're justified. Look instead, these are commentators, Kenneth Bowen and William Crudener. Look what they said. They said, when God justifies or declares righteous, a guilty sinner, two things happen. Negatively, the sinner is declared no longer guilty of sin. That's kind of the summary of that word pardon, no longer guilty. But watch, positively, the sinner is declared righteous. Not made righteous, but declared righteous. God cancels out the debt of guilt that is on the sinner's account and then credits righteousness to his or her account, both actions must take place for justification to occur. So I want you to see this. As great as it would be through a legal lens to be pardoned of our sin, go back to what we said, the gospel often gets boiled down to how to get out of hell. That's the idea of the legal sense in our world of pardon is simply I'm no longer responsible for, no longer guilty of, no longer can be punished for this kind of sin. But see that when the Bible uses the word justify, it's so much greater. It's a passage that I allude to so often, and I hope you never get bored of it, but I keep coming back to it because it's so powerful. 2 Corinthians 5.21, but God... Again, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we in him might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that equation looks like. God says, when you respond to what Jesus has done on your behalf, Jesus says, here I am standing in the rightness of God, the right relationship with God. I am going to come over and stand in your sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin. But then, and that would be the idea of pardon. Jesus takes it for you, but it's more than that. Jesus then escorts you over into his righteousness. This exchange happens. That is so much more than any legal system in our country or any country could offer you. To not only be pardoned from the guilt and the consequences, but then to be made right as though you had never broken a law positionally with God. That blows my mind. When the Bible says that Jesus justifies us, he's saying he both pardons us and makes us right, makes us clearly rightly related to him. Now, if this wasn't enough, Paul actually introduces a new metaphor. 
Right in the text we just read, we read right over it. Remember, Paul's readers, hearing this in the original Greek, they would have understood not only is a courtroom going on, but they would have understood this next metaphor because Paul used the word redemption. You see, not only are they realizing as they're listening to this that they have been guilty of crimes that need to be punished, but instead they also are hearing you are not just a citizen who's been brought into a court, you are property of sin. You are slaves to sin. So Paul's going to use a slavery metaphor. It's right there in your notes. The definition of redemption is the price paid for release. The price paid for release. It's a slavery term. So meaning, as soon as the people, the audience are hearing these words, they've just realized they've moved settings. The metaphor at first was a legal setting before a judge. Now it's moved from a courtroom to a slave auction. And they would have thought that. They would have had that idea in mind because that's what a redemption is. It's the price you pay to free a slave. You've been pardoned. You've been made right. You've been freed. No longer slaves, but instead someone who is, well, we'll see today even beyond a citizen. But in terms of multiple metaphors, Paul isn't done. He's going to introduce a third powerful idea. Look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In your notes, the concept of atonement meant that Jesus' sacrifice turned aside the wrath of God that could only be satisfied by the shed blood of the sinless God-man who bore the sin of the world. This is why we said when we began this series a couple weeks ago, why Jesus' humanity and deity were so essential. That not only would it be a God who is going to sacrifice himself for humanity, but it's a human, perfectly sinless human, combined together, 100% of both, create the perfect sacrifice in our place. This sacrifice turned aside the wrath of God. Romans 1 begins with that. The wrath of God is being revealed against all kinds of lawlessness. So in 118, now over in 325, Paul answers the question, we're under 118, we're all under and subject to the wrath of God. Now in 325, he solves that equation by saying, what Jesus did at the cross turned aside the wrath. Do you understand the reason we make such a big deal about Christmas? Jesus was the one-of-a-kind son of God. Do you know of anyone who's ever trod the planet? There is no one who could have done what he did. He alone was eligible to bear our sin. Jesus even says to his disciples around the, the, in the upper room around this table, it, no greater love does a man have that he would die for his friend. Jesus is saying that, and that's true of all humanity. We say that even when we think, think about people who have died for our country or someone who would even put their life up for you. But Jesus is taking that one step further. I'm not one of you in the sense of being at the same level. I am this unique, uniquely eligible God-man, and my sacrifice extends to every person. He turns back the wrath of God. I love the way that commentator F.F. F. Bruce captures all of what we've seen. Look at what he says. Paul has thus pressed into service the language of the law court, the word justified, the slave market, that of redemption, and the altar, the atoning sacrifice, in an attempt to do justice to the fullness of God's gracious act in Christ. Pardon, liberation, and atonement 
All are made available to men and women by his free initiative and may be appropriated by faith. And I want to say to you, as amazing as those three realities are accomplished at the cross, even greater still is what's to come. Finally today, number three in your notes, the intersection of God's judgment and our pardon provides our adoption as God's own. The intersection of God's judgment and our pardon provides our adoption as God's own. Back to verse 25, he being God, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We have said throughout this series that what we're looking at each week are the intersection of two ideas. These ideas don't mutually oppose each other, but they're not things you would put together. If this was a message purely of judgment, you wouldn't necessarily think there's hope for pardon, but there is. But out of that thing, when those two things intersect together, a new thing comes, and we see today, we'll see in just a moment, that new thing is not just being positionally right with God, but actually being invited to be his son, to be his daughter. Absolutely overwhelming. Look how Paul puts it. In case some were concerned, and this is an interesting thing, in case some were concerned that God had not really dealt with the sin of those who lived before Jesus, right? There were millennia of humans who had walked the planet before Jesus ever showed up. What happens to their sin? And realize there was a truckload of sin along the way. They understand that Jesus was to punish those sins beforehand. Jesus was the sacrifice to meet that punishment. Look in your notes. This is the theological definition of the word forbearance. I read right over that, and you did too, and, but we have to stop and pause. What does that word actually mean? It means of God releasing his judgment on sin in the Old Testament when redeeming believers. This was based on the absolutely sure upcoming sacrifice of Christ retroactively applied to them in God's immutable, eternal plan. Now, for some not only considering forbearance, not only considering what God did to, to deal with the sin before Jesus, but even on this side of the cross. I can't tell you how many times my favorite method of just sharing the great news of Jesus with someone who isn't yet convinced is I actually kind of go even pre-Bible, meaning I don't pull out a lot of scripture initially. I just say, try this on. What if, what if there was a being absolutely, completely sufficient in himself who puts into motion a created order so that he might have relationship, so he might love his creatures. And what if in that process he does the ultimate, not only creates them, but gives them the option to love him. And the option to love him means you have the option not to, and the choice to rebel if so chosen. And what if that being does such a thing, puts his creation into motion, and his creatures turn against him, choosing to do their thing, not his? Would you expect anything less than that being to bring justice to that problem? As I share that with people who 
have not been convinced yet of who Jesus is, quite often, if they put themselves in those shoes, they go, yeah, you got to do something about that. But what if rather than just smashing it all up and throwing it away and starting over and going with a better, quote, better option, I'll make automatons who just do what I want them to do, the whole give them free will didn't work well. What if this same being said, I'm going to deal with the problem, but the way I'm going to deal with it is I'm going to take the punishment they deserve. And what if in doing that, the reality then for those creatures, those beings in response was simply to place their trust, their faith in what was done for them and to walk in relationship with him. What, what do you think about that? When I ask people to try that on, do you know what they often tell me? Sounds too good to be true. I don't think I could ever believe that. And I asked them why. What's, this, what's the gap there? What's the challenge? And what they begin to tell me is, I know you're talking about God and probably the God of the Bible. You're a pastor. That would make sense. And, and as they begin, they'd say, but you don't understand the weight of my guilt. You don't know what I've done. And there's no way that a God can simply turn his head and let me by knowing what I've done. And you know what? I love it when they say that. Because I say he didn't. Everything you deserve, he took out on his son. Never once was justice misaligned. Never once was justice not carried out. It's simply a point of who do you want to take it? You or his one-of-a-kind son he gave for the purpose of taking it in your place? Listen to the way that these quotes so powerfully connect the dot of God's intact justice. Bo and Crudener say this, but what the world did not count on was a God who was both just and a justifier of the guilty. No one goes free without the penalty being paid. That's never the issue. It's just that no one imagined the judge would also pay the price. Colin Cruz said at the cross, the claims of justice as well as the claims of mercy are satisfied. And probably some of the favorite lyrics of any hymn ever written, a song we're going to sing today in just a few moments as we receive communion. It's the second verse that gets me every time. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This song so eloquently connects the dots of what we've talked about today. We said a couple of weeks ago, we say it again today, there was no one else eligible to do this on your behalf. So imagine, imagine Jesus in those 30 plus years on the planet. Imagine he comes, he's even in the garden, weeping before his father. If there's any other way for this to happen, surface it now. <laughs> I'll take that. Let's see what else is available. Imagine at any point he decides to bail out. The only one who could have ever done this for us, not only is eligible, but he's willing. 
It goes to the cross in our stead and as a result creates a way. And we've said today, as amazing as all these judicial ideas of pardon, justification, redemption, atonement, as amazing as they are, the Bible says there's even more, if you can even fathom that. And it's what we said last week, the kids' musical laid this great foundation. It was all based on the concept of orphans seeking adoption and realizing that they could actually be adopted into God's family. This is what Galatians 4 says. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, here's that word again, to redeem, to buy back those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you get to call the creator of the universe, Dad. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. I don't know if there's a better way to summarize this concept than how J.I. Packer does it in his book, Knowing God. This is what he writes. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, the concept of justification is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father through adoption is greater. Can we say yay God? Let's do it together. One, two, three. Yay God. This is the most amazing news. And here's what we see. When we walk through all these wonderful layers of reality, we see today the gospel is so much more than just what you get away from. It's all about what you've been entered into. And when you consider that, you consider today what we said, what is our, our now what statement? This should erupt in praise. This should erupt in gratitude. God, thank you for what you've done for me. But you know what it should also do? Make us mindful that God's great news has come to you. Praise him. But there are people in your relational world that he also loves deeply and calls invites into relationship to be his that's why christmas time is such a great time to not only stop and reflect on what god has done for you but what he's also done for the people in your world you heard it said earlier today by steve today we are putting together a christmas eve service that will be such just a great entry point opportunity for people in your world I want to give you great confidence in what's being put together, that it's something you could feel glad about that you invited them, but something they would walk away and go, you know what? Not only was that a great program, but man, there's something I need to think about. And so I would say this Christmas season, be prayerful, be intentional, be someone who takes that step that Steve said, just in invite. And the great news is, is what they do with that invitation is always between them and God. But what you do just to make the invitation, that's between you and God. Make the invitation, see what God wants to do, and let's be a people with robust gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who are absolutely grateful for what you have done on our behalf by sending your one and only son on a rescue mission for us. We are so grateful 
through all these different lenses we've looked at, through a legal lens, through a, a lens of no longer being slaves, through a lens of turning aside your, your wrath to a lens of adoption. God, all of these things, we stop and process today and we say how great of a good news this is. Thank you, God, for making it known to us. And in turn, would we be a people who don't shy away from making it known to the people in our world? God, because you love them deeply. You may be here today and you would have to honestly say, I've actually never responded to this invitation myself. Yes, there are not only people in my relational world who need Jesus, but actually, if I'm honest, I know I do. And I have great news for you today. There's no class to attend. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no merit list to earn. It just simply begins with a response. A, admit. Admit that in the jury, in the courtroom, you have been found guilty. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe. Believe that this God-man, Jesus, lived a sinless life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that what Jesus did was on your behalf, and it does all the things we talked about today. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my trust, my, my confidence in what you've done for me. And as a result, I simply want to live out your example and share this great news with other people in my life. That's where it all begins. And I would encourage you and implore you today, make that decision. Don't leave this place until you do. Father, we love you. Thank you for your rich, rich mercy over our lives. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. We're going to receive communion today. If you're part of that team of ushers, you can make your way back. You'll notice that we've kind of moved that arrangement around a little bit. They'll be serving from the back today, so don't let that throw you off. And as they're doing that, as they're getting ready to offer those elements to you, I just want to bring you back. I want you to think of today's passage, actually, through this lens. Watch this for a minute. Imagine being at San Bernardino Superior Court. Imagine being there, and imagine you start the day in criminal court. And as you start that day in criminal court, imagine that as a sequence of events go, like we've said today, there's a judge behind the desk. He actually finds you guilty and then pardons you. And you're blown away. But immediately you're escorted over to civil court. And as you're in civil court, it's the same judge who's behind that desk. And, and the charges are brought in. The reality is you're, no, you're found to be no longer ownership, property, I'm sorry, of someone else, of sin. You're set free. And still yet from civil court, you go to family court. And the best day in every judge's life is when he gets to pronounce an adoption into a family. And in that family court, you have been brought into the family of God as his son, as his daughter. All of that happens in the passage we've looked at today. And all of that fuels our gratitude. Jesus, thank you for what you've afforded to me. As the elements come by, I'd encourage you, receive a piece of bread, receive a cup, hold on to those. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus and you might not attend Trinity Church, you are welcome at this table. If you're here and you haven't yet made that decision, I would say even as the elements are being passed out, even now, make that choice to follow Jesus and receive communion the way it was always intended to be received. 
out of gratitude for what Jesus has done on your behalf. Let's receive the elements now. as they were celebrating Passover, we call it the Last Supper. Disciples didn't understand what was going on. Elements on the table 
that they had partaken of since they were children are still there tonight. And Jesus takes the bread, uh, unleavened bread that had meant for the ideas. It was eat it quickly because we're on the run. We're leaving Egypt. Pharaoh's behind us. You got to go quick. That's what they'd thought this had meant, and it had for centuries. But Jesus takes the bread and he says, this means something different now. Moving forward, this represents my body broken for you. Take and eat. Let's receive it today. cup was also on the table. The cup had represented the idea of what the people of Israel would look forward to in the promised land. There would be vines that would have rich, rich produce, fruit galore. They would enjoy this new reality. It also represented the blood over the door frame, representing sacrifice and moving forward. Jesus says, let me bring those ideas together. Let me actually tell you there's a new covenant. A new covenant found in my blood. Receive it together. Let's do that today. Father God, we say thank you. Thank you for what Jesus did at a cross for us. Thank you for what he did that made all things new. And as we move forward, we move not in religion, but we move in rightness because of what Jesus has done extending relationship to us. We say thank you for that this morning. We pray in his mighty name, amen.